the National Archives podcast series, Genius on Trial, key sources relating to Oscar Wilde at the National Archives, presented by Charles Tattersall. You can find speaker's notes and featured documents to accompany this podcast at nationalarchives.gov.uk forward slash podcasts. The story of Wilde's friendship with Lord Alfred Douglas, his unsuccessful libel action against Douglas's father, the Marquess of Queensbury, and the two subsequent trials which led to his imprisonment for two years with hard labour, is one of the most sensational and controversial episodes in the social and cultural history of the late 19th century. I will be using some of the key documents to help to illustrate and clarify this complex chain of events, which Hall Kane, a contemporary writer, described as the most awful tragedy in the whole history of literature. The majority of these documents cover the years from 1895 to 1897, the period of Wilde's three trials and imprisonment. The principal records are the legal records of the Central Criminal Court, the prison records of the Home Office and the prison commissioners, and the bankruptcy papers from the Court of Bankruptcy. The largest proportion of these are the prison records, and the documents as a whole offer insights both into Wilde himself and into how he was perceived by the authorities and officials responsible for him. Researchers have questioned the small amount of papers in the National Archives relating to the trials themselves. In fact, all the documents that would normally survive have been preserved in Wilde's case, with the exception of the minutes of evidence or court proceedings. In the printed book which should contain the proceedings of the last two trials, there is simply the statement, the details of this case are unfit for publication. Fortunately for posterity, coverage of major trials in the press at this time was very detailed, and it has been possible to build up a comprehensive picture of them. This has been done most notably by Harford Montgomery Hyde in his book The Trials of Oscar Wilde, and by Wilde's grandson, Merlin Holland, in his book Irish Peacock and Scarlet Marquis, which contains a recently discovered full transcription of the first trial. A more serious omission is the lack of papers from the Director of Public Prosecution's Office detailing the preparation of the Crown's case against Wilde. With the exception of one letter, which will be featured later in my talk, there is no trace of these papers. The most recent information suggests that Hamilton Cuff, the Director of Public Prosecution's, took the relevant files with him when he retired from the post and that the files were subsequently destroyed in a fire at his house in Ireland. Our first encounter with Wilde in the public records is in a census entry from 1881 where we find him as a boarder at number one Tite Street. This house, designed by Edward Godwin, who would later design Wilde's own house at number 16, belonged to a friend of Wilde's, Frank Miles, an artist of independent means through whom Wilde had gained access to the cultured and privileged social circles to which he aspired. Wilde's occupation is given as literature, with author written in another hand next to it. He was 24 years old at the time. Wilde was on the threshold of his literary career, about to publish his first book of poems, and shortly to embark on his celebrated lecture tour of America in 1882. This publicity photograph taken in New York by Napoleon Cerrone is typical of his flamboyant style at the time. The next census entry, dated 1891, finds Wilde again in Tite Street, this time at his own address, number 16. Again, his entry has been circled on the screen. Wilde is entered in the census as the head of the house, 
with his profession given as literature. His wife and children being away at the time are not listed. By this time, Wilde was well established as a writer and about to enter the most successful phase of his career as a dramatist. In the ten years which separate these two census entries, he had worked hard to gain for the first time in his life some real financial security, and the future should have been assured. It was at this point that he first encountered Lord Alfred Douglas in the summer of 1891. This chance meeting at Wilde's tight street home would prove to be the most important and fateful encounter of Wilde's later life. Douglas, known as Bosey to his friends, was the youngest son of the Marquess of Queensbury. He was 20 years old at the time, in his second year as an undergraduate at Magdalen, Wilde's old college at Oxford. He was already an admirer of Wilde's writing when he was introduced to him by the poet and fellow undergraduate Lionel Johnson. Douglas, like Johnson, was a poet of considerable promise. His striking good looks and the seeming glamour of his aristocratic background were additional attractions. The relationship initially developed slowly. But an incident in which Wilde helped to extricate Douglas from a blackmailing scandal in Oxford brought them closer together, and by the summer of 1892 they were becoming inseparable. This did not escape the attention of Douglas's father, the Marquis of Queensbury. By the time Douglas met Wilde, he was already locked in an obsessive battle with his father, which dominated his own life and would ultimately destroy Wilde's. Queensbury began a campaign against Wilde, which gradually escalated in intensity. In a letter to his son in April 1894, he wrote, "I am not going to try to analyse this intimacy, and I make no charge. But to my mind, to pose as a thing is as bad as to be it." And on the 30th of June 1894, Queensbury paid a surprise visit to Wilde's house in Tite Street, with a professional boxer in tow. The purpose of this visit was to intimidate Wilde into giving up his relationship with Douglas. Queensbury claimed that Wilde had shown the white feather, but Wilde's description of events was somewhat different, telling his adversary, "I do not know what the Queensbury rules are, but the Oscar Wilde rule is to shoot on sight." Despite his brave face, Wilde knew that the situation was rapidly worsening. He decided to seek legal advice about the libelous comments which Queensbury was writing about him in letters to his son. This letter from his solicitors, Humphreys and Humphreys, was sent shortly after the confrontation with Queensbury. My Lord Marquis, we have been consulted by Mr. Oscar Wilde with respect to certain letters written by your lordship, in which letters you have most foully and infamously libelled him, as also your own son, Lord Alfred Douglas. Mr. Oscar Wilde has instructed us to give you the opportunity of retracting your assertions and insinuations, in writing with an apology for having made them. If this be done at once, it may prevent litigation. Queensbury claimed in reply that his comments had not been directly addressed to Wilde, but that he wanted his association with Douglas to cease. Wilde later regretted not having taken legal action, writing to Douglas, "I think now that it would have been better for me to have had him bound over to keep the peace." It is likely that in 1894 such a prosecution of Queensbury would have been successful, given the lack of evidence against Wilde at the time and the nature of Queensbury's intimidating behaviour. Meanwhile, Douglas had become entirely dependent on Wilde financially, having given up his £250 per year allowance from his father, and the relationship between the two men was becoming increasingly destructive, particularly for Wilde, who had made several unsuccessful attempts to end it. Events reached their climax in February 1895, with Queensbury determined to force a confrontation with Wilde. 
Having been narrowly prevented from disrupting the first night of the importance of being earnest on the 14th of February, Queensbury arrived at Wilde's club, the Albemarle, four days later on the 18th of February. Not finding him there, Queensbury wrote a short message to Wilde on a visiting card and handed it to the hall porter, Sidney Wright, asking him to give the card to Wilde when he next visited the club. Wright could not make out the full text of the message, but he understood enough to realise its significance. He wrote the date and time of receipt on the back of the card and placed it in one of the club's envelopes. Ten days later, on the 28th of February, Wilde, who had been staying with Douglas and a friend of his at the Avondale Hotel in Piccadilly, called in at his club and was handed Queensbury's card. The fact that Queensbury wrote out the card in a hurry may account for the misspelling of somdomite for sodomite and certainly accounts for the problems in deciphering the exact message. In fact, at this degree of magnification, it is fairly clear that the message reads, For Oscar Wilde, posing somdomite the P and G in posing being separated at the beginning and end of the word. In court, Queensbury's counsel would later claim that it read posing as somdomite, a slightly less serious accusation for him to have to defend. The large letter A in the bottom left corner indicates that the card was Exhibit A in the subsequent libel trial. Ironically, Wilde had intended to leave for France on the previous day, the 27th of February, but he being prevented from doing so by the manager of the Avondale Hotel, who refused to release his luggage until the bill, which as usual included Douglas's expenses, was settled in full. On his return to the hotel, he wrote to his close friend Robert Ross, saying, I don't see anything now but a criminal prosecution. My whole life seems ruined by this man. I don't know what to do. He asked Ross to visit him at 11.30pm that night, and added at the end, I have asked Bosey to come tomorrow. In fact, Douglas did visit Wilde at the hotel that night and not the following morning as Wilde had requested. We know this from an annotation by Ross on the original letter which reads, I went up that evening at 11.30. Douglas was there. Ross tried to prevent Wilde from taking legal action, but Douglas saw the longed-for opportunity of a contest with his father in the courts in which he hoped to play a leading role. Together they visited the solicitors the following day. But even at this stage, Wilde, with his instinctive mistrust of relying on the processes of law, tried to halt proceedings by claiming, quite correctly, that he could not possibly afford the cost of such a prosecution. However, Douglas assured Wilde that his own family would foot the bill, an undertaking which was not subsequently honoured. In the short term, Douglas managed to raise £360, and Wilde borrowed a further £500 from his friend Ernest Leverson. Queensbury was arrested and charged with publishing a libel against Wilde on the 2nd of March, 1895. A preliminary hearing took place at Marlborough Street Magistrates Court on the 9th of March. In the packed courtroom, Wilde and Queensbury's depositions were taken down in longhand by the clerk of the court. Wilde begins in confidence and characteristic style. I am a dramatist and author. I take great interest in matters of art and reside at 16 Tite Street, SW. I am acquainted with the defendant and with many members of his family. He goes on to describe his various meetings with Queensbury over the next few pages, trying his best to remember details of dates and times. It seems Wilde had as much difficulty as everyone else in deciphering the card. Having described how he received it, he continues, I read what was on the card as best I could. 
I immediately communicated with my solicitor and had an interview with him on the following day. The deposition ends with the first of many original signatures by Wilde in the public records. Queensbury's deposition, by contrast, is short and to the point. I have simply to say this, that I wrote the card simply with the intention of bringing matters to a head, having been unable to meet Mr. Wilde otherwise, and to save my son, and I abide by what I wrote. This is the final page of Queensbury's deposition. Wilde's solicitors engaged the services of Sir Edward Clarke, one of the foremost barristers of his day. Clarke only agreed to accept the case if Wilde assured him of his innocence. Wilde did so, but it was not an auspicious beginning. However, when he and Douglas left for a brief holiday in the south of France on the 12th of March, they had no reason to feel particularly concerned about the situation. At the time of the hearing, the only evidence which Queensbury could use in his defence was in the form of some arguably indiscreet letters to Douglas and certain extracts from Wilde's published writings. If Wilde had to defend his writings or his letters in court, he felt quite confident of his ability to do so. Moreover, the legal precedents seemed promising. The current legislation relating to male homosexuality was Section 11 of the Criminal Law Amendment Act, 1885. This had met its first major test in the so-called Cleveland Street Scandal of 1889, which involved serious allegations concerning male prostitution. The failure to arrest Lord Arthur Somerset, one of the chief suspects, and the collapse of the prosecution case against another suspect, Lord Euston, may well have encouraged Wilde to believe that Section 11 of the Act would not be rigorously enforced. Meanwhile, Douglas was convinced that his evidence against his father in the witness box would in itself be enough to sway the jury in Wilde's favour. This document shows the indictment of Queensbury for libel, drawn up by Wilde's solicitors, which was examined and approved as a true bill at a further hearing on the 25th of March. The jurors for Our Lady the Queen, upon their oath, present that John Sholto Douglas, Marquess of Queensbury, unlawfully, wickedly and maliciously, did cause to be written and published of him, the said Oscar Fingal O'Flaty Wills Wilde, as false, scandalous and malicious libel in the form of a card. In fact, Queensbury's provocation of Wilde, which he later referred to as the booby trap, had been a carefully calculated gamble. Its success depended on Queensbury being able to get hold of the hard evidence against Wilde to back up his accusations. In the month leading up to the trial, he managed to do this with the help of a team of private detectives who assembled a formidable array of witnesses willing to testify against Wilde in court. On the 30th of March, Queensbury's solicitors entered the plea of justification for their client. This page contains the names, which are underlined, of a number of the witnesses who would feature in the later trials, and the final page summarises the case for the defence, and that the said works entitled The Chameleon and the Picture of Dorian Gray were calculated to subvert morality and to encourage unnatural vice, and that the said Oscar Fingal O'Flaty Wills Wilde had corrupted and debauched the morals of the said Charles Parker, Alfonso Harold Conway, Walter Granger, Sidney Maver, Frederick Atkins, Ernest Scarfe and Edward Shelley. The chameleon referred to in the plea was an Oxford undergraduate magazine to which Wilde had contributed some phrases and philosophies for the use of the young. One can only imagine Wilde and Douglas's reactions when they saw this document on their return from France a few days before the trial. The plea of justification contains the source of nearly all the evidence which would later be used to convict Wilde, and is perhaps the most important of all the surviving legal documents.
The trial opened on the 3rd of April, with Queensbury's defence being undertaken by Edward Carson, who had known Wilde slightly at Trinity College, Dublin. Wilde appeared confident in the early stages as he put up a spirited defence of his writings. However, he knew from the plea of justification about the weight of evidence which could be used against him. Despite Douglas's protestations, Edward Clark did not allow him into the witness box, maintaining that his evidence against his father would be ruled inadmissible, as it was not relevant to the charges against Wilde. When Carson moved from literature to specific allegations and threatened to produce the witnesses he had named, Wilde began to lose his composure. His prosecution of Queensbury collapsed under Carson's relentless cross-examination, and on the morning of the third day of the trial, April the 5th, Clark was forced to withdraw and to accept that the whole of Queensbury's plea was allowed. Clark had hoped by doing this he would be able to halt further legal proceedings. However, at the end of the case, Charles Russell, one of Queensbury's solicitors, sent Hamilton Cuff, the Director of Public Prosecutions, the following letter. In order that there may be no miscarriage of justice, I think it my duty at once to send you a copy of all our witnesses' statements, together with a copy of the shorthand notes of the trial. Wilde's position was now critical. His only chance of escape was to leave the country, but a strange combination of bravery and fatalism, together with his customary dislike of decisive action, made him stay. Events now moved at great speed. At 5pm on the same day, the 5th of April, a warrant was issued to the police, and at 6.20, Wilde was arrested in room 53 at the Cadogan Hotel in Sloan Street and taken to Bow Street Police Station. An application for bail was refused. The Director of Public Prosecution's office lost no time in assembling the Crown's case. In this letter dated 19th of April 1895 to Hamilton Cuff from Charles Gill, who had acted in Queensbury's defence, Gill writes, I have considered the question as to whether a prosecution ought to be instituted against Lord Alfred Douglas. I have come to the conclusion that no proceedings should be taken upon the evidence we have. I think Douglas, if guilty, may fairly be regarded as one of Wilde's victims. The belief that Douglas had been Wilde's victim was a plausible theory which was widely held at the time. In fact, it was Douglas who had introduced Wilde to the rent boys and blackmailers of the homosexual underworld, and it is notable that all the charges against Wilde date from after his association with Douglas began. This letter, which I referred to earlier, is the only original document which remains from the Director of Public Prosecution's papers relating to Wilde. However, a memorandum sent by Cuff the following day, endorsing the views expressed in the letter, has been preserved in a Home Office file. As he awaited his first trial as defendant in Holloway Prison, where he had been moved from Bow Street, Wilde was overtaken by the next in the chain of disasters. For some time he had been living entirely on the income deriving from his books and plays. Following his arrest, the plays quickly closed and his books were withdrawn from the shops. Consequently, he was unable to pay the costs owing to Queensbury from the failed libel action. With other creditors demanding immediate settlement, a bailiff's execution sale of all the possessions in his house was held at his home, 16 Tite Street, on the 24th of April, 1895. In the general confusion, many items, including manuscripts, were stolen and the sale raised £285, a fraction of the real value of the possessions. The indictment drawn up for the Crown prosecution of Wilde and Alfred Taylor lists 25 counts, the first four of which are shown here. 
Alfred Taylor was the owner of the rooms in Little College Street, Pimlico, from which so much of the incriminating evidence had been gathered, and he was tried alongside Wilde. This is an extract from the first count. The jurors for Our Lady the Queen, upon their oath, present that Oscar Fingal O'Flaherty wills Wilde, being a male person, unlawfully did commit acts of gross indecency with another male person, to wit, one Charles Parker, against the form of the statute, in such, such case made and provided. On the 28th of April, the trial opened, with Sir Edward Clarke again representing Wilde, which he now generously did without accepting a fee. This image from the police news illustrates the closing stages of the trial. Clark did well, getting several of the counts in the indictment dismissed, and Wilde himself rallied with his famous speech on the love that dare not speak its name. Consequently, the jury were unable to reach a verdict, although those opposed to his conviction were in the minority. The newspapers reported from an inside source the following day that the voting had been split ten to two. The following letter sent by Mr F. Moore to the Home Secretary Herbert Asquith on the 5th of May 1895, before the last trial, is an example of the kind of hostility that Wilde's case could engender. Sir, I give you full warning that if the Treasury and judges let Oscar Wilde escape his just doom of penal servitude for sodomy, Queensbury and others intend to kill him stone dead with bullet or knife. Hundreds of men would gladly shoot Wilde tomorrow. This letter, which had been preceded by another in a similar tone, was taken seriously enough for Mr Moore to receive a formal police caution. Few people were willing to speak up publicly on Wilde's behalf at this time. A contrasting letter sent to the Home Secretary on the 11th of May 1895 by Mrs J Cunningham is a brave and rare example of someone who was willing to break the conspiracy of silence. Sir, it is perhaps natural that men should hesitate to defend Oscar Wilde warmly lest they be suspected. Nevertheless, it is a duty that anyone should not shirk. Amongst women of education and literary tastes, there is only one opinion, that of deep sorrow for the terrible consequences of Queensbury's attack. A national calamity is what many of us feel his disgrace amounts to. The Home Office's response is revealing. An official has written on a covering note, this lady seems to be eccentric. Wilde had been released on bail, which was set at the considerable sum of £5,000, about £300,000 in today's money. He stayed first with his mother and brother in Oakley Street, but spent the final week with his loyal friends Ernest and Ada Leverson. The final trial opened on the 22nd of May 1895 and lasted four days. This time Wilde and Taylor were tried separately. The conspiracy charges against them had been dropped, but there were still 16 counts against Wilde. Sir Edward Clarke, in his final speech, laid stress on the tainted nature of the witnesses and their evidence, saying, The trial seems to be operating as an act of indemnity for all the blackmailers of London. Clarke's speech was powerful, but Sir Frank Lockwood used his prerogative as Solicitor General to deliver the closing address to the jury, which Wilde later referred to as Lockwood's appalling denunciation of me. This time the verdict was unanimous, and Wilde was found guilty on all counts in the indictment, except the one relating to Edward Shelley. Wilde and Alfred Taylor, who had also been found guilty, were sentenced together, with the judge, Justice Wills, reserving some particularly harsh comments for Wilde. It is the worst case I have ever tried. That you, Taylor, kept a kind of male brothel, it is impossible to doubt and that you, Wilde, have been the centre of a circle of corruption of the most hideous kind among young men, 
it is equally impossible to doubt. Both men were sentenced to two years imprisonment with hard labor, the maximum sentence allowed by law. Wilde would later summarize these experiences in De Profundis. All trials are trials for one's life, just as all sentences are sentences of death, and three times have I been tried. The first time I left the box to be arrested, the second time to be led back to the house of detention, the third time to pass into a prison for two years. Wilde began his sentence at Pentonville Prison. Still in a state of shock following the sudden reversal in his fortunes, neither he nor the prison authorities knew what to make of each other. Unable to eat or sleep properly, he grew steadily weaker and his health quickly deteriorated. The fact that he was losing weight was noted, but no action was taken. On the 21st of June, Wilde was served with a bankruptcy notice for the costs of his failed case against Queensbury, a total of £677 and three shillings. On the 4th of July, he was moved from Pentonville to Wandsworth, where he found the conditions even more intolerable. Meanwhile, Douglas, who had been persuaded by Wilde and Sir Edward Clarke to leave the country before the second trial, had watched helplessly from France as events went from bad to worse. On June the 25th, he addressed a petition to Queen Victoria on Wilde's behalf. In it, he expresses many of the sentiments which he had hoped to use in court in Wilde's defence. I appeal to you to exercise your power of pardon in the case of Oscar Wilde, a victim not to the righteous indignation of abstract justice, but rather to the spite and unscrupulous cunning of another man, the Marquis of Queensbury, whose son I have the misfortune to be. His sole object in attacking his son's friend was to dishonour that son. Needless to say, the petition had no effect. The following month, prompted by an article recently published in the French press, he addressed a furious letter to the Home Secretary, a striking example of the famous Douglas temper. I beg you to inform me, sir, whether it is a fact, as stated in this article, that permission was given to a gang of filthy journalists to go and gape at Mr. Oscar Wilde, in the shameful dress and under the revolting conditions which a nation of cowards and hypocrites has condemned him. If you, sir, are the person responsible, pray have no hesitation in inquiring from me any satisfaction or explanation you may deem due to you. A revealing comment on the file by a Home Office official reads, Nothing this man says seems to require any attention. On the 13th of September, Wilde's wife, Constance, seen here with their eldest son, Cyril, wrote to the prison commissioners requesting a special interview with her husband. The letter was written from Switzerland, Constance having taken both the children to Europe at the time of her husband's imprisonment. It reveals important details, both about the fragile state of relations between Wilde and his wife at this time, and about her own health. My husband, I have reason to know, is apprehensive of my obtaining a divorce from him. As my mind is not, however, definitely made up to this step, I am most anxious to be allowed to talk over matters with him and discuss the arrangements by which so extreme a step could be avoided. As I am scarcely strong enough to travel alone, I am obliged to take the only opportunity I have of an escort by accompanying a friend. Constance had suffered a serious fall on the stairs at Tite Street shortly before her husband's arrest. Wilde did not learn about this until much later. The request for a visit was granted, and the interview took place on the 21st of September, 1895. His wife promised a reconciliation with herself and their children after his release from prison, and she later withdrew from divorce proceedings. 
the change which had already taken place in Wilde's attitude to Douglas is reflected in the letter which his wife wrote afterwards to their mutual friend Robert Sherrard. He has been mad the last three years, and he says that if he saw Douglas, he would kill him. So he had better keep away and be satisfied with having marred a fine life. Meanwhile, Wilde's condition continued to deteriorate, and he was now suffering from dysentery. In early October 1895, there occurred the breakdown in his health which had long been threatening. Exhausted by illness, malnutrition, and lack of sleep, he was unable to get out of bed when woken in the morning. Having been forced to do so, he fell heavily, injuring his head. He managed to dress himself, but fainted during prayers in the prison chapel. This incident marked the crisis, and in some ways the turning point of Wilde's time in prison. From now on there would be a gradual but steady improvement in the authorities' treatment of him up to the time of his release. But the sufferings which he had endured during the first six months of his sentence would have a lasting and fatal effect on his health. By the 12th of November, after several weeks in the prison hospital, Wilde was considered to have sufficiently recovered to attend his public examination at the bankruptcy court. His friends had tried to raise the money to prevent his bankruptcy, but were unable to do so as more and more creditors emerged. Wilde's debts totaled £3,591, about £215,000 in today's money, and his assets were not thought to exceed £100. This bill, submitted to the court by the booksellers David Nutt, includes a number of unpaid orders for presentation copies of Wilde's own work, The Happy Prince, and the unpaid orders on an earlier page date back as far as 1888. Another bill, submitted by William Bramley's job and livery establishment, includes an entry for Wilde's hire of a carriage and a pair of horses for the three days of his first trial, from the 3rd to 5th of April, 1895. A note at the end of the entry reads, Long Day. This extract from Wilde's public examination by the official receiver, each page of which is signed by him, shows that he was already seriously in debt two years before his arrest. Question. Your expenditure during the two years preceding the date of the receiving order has been at the rate of £2,900 a year and upwards. You were therefore living beyond your income. Is that not so? Answer. Yes. Question. And the accounts show that in July 1893, your liabilities were in excess of your assets to the amount of £1,450. Answer. Yes. On the 2nd of July 1896, Wilde, who had been moved from Wandsworth to Reading Jail the previous November, sent his first and most important petition to the Home Secretary, pleading for mitigation of his sentence. Written in handwriting about half the size of his usual script, to make the most use of the three sides of paper allowed him. This is the most substantial document which we hold in the National Archives in Wilde's own writing. The petition of the above-named prisoner humbly showeth that he does not desire to palliate in any way the terrible offences of which he was rightly found guilty, but to point out that such offences are diseases to be cured by a physician rather than crimes to be punished by a judge. Dreadful as are the results of the prison system, Yet at least among its aims is not the desire to wreck the human reason, and so earnestly does the petitioner beg that he may be allowed to go forth, while words still have a meaning and books a message. Wilde's view of his misdemeanours as diseases to be cured by a physician rather than crimes to be punished by a judge is in fact backed up by a letter written the previous year by the prison chaplain at Wandsworth, W.D. Morrison, in which he says of Wilde, 
Had he pleaded guilty, it is probable that medical evidence would have been put in to mitigate the sentence. As he pleaded not guilty, no medical evidence was forthcoming, and the authorities are in the dark as to the man's mental condition. Much of the petition is taken up with Wilde's concerns about the effect of imprisonment on his health, both physical and mental. He refers to his recent physical collapse and to a serious ear infection and partial deafness, a condition which may have been exacerbated by his fall in Wandsworth. Wilde held out a lot of hope for the success of his petition, and a covering note from the Home Office refers to it as a powerful appeal. Its failure was therefore a major setback. Wilde wrote to Robert Ross, The refusal to commute my sentence has been like a blow from a leaden sword. These are the two remaining pages. One positive result which the petition did bring about was the prov provision by the prison commissioners of more books and writing materials, which Wilder complained of being denied. This list of books in his own hand was amended by Major Nelson, the newly appointed governor of Reading Jail, whose enlightened approach to running the prison was soon noticed by Wilde and the other inmates. The choice of books includes A Greek Testament, Farrar's St. Paul, Tennyson's Poems, complete in one volume. Carlyle's Sartor Rosatus and Life of Frederick the Great, a prose translation of Dante's Divine Comedy, Keats's poems, Chaucer's poems. In January 1896, Wilde began to write the long letter to Douglas, which was later titled by Robert Ross, De Profundis, which translates as From the Depths. Wilde described it as the most important letter I will ever write, and he used it both to express his anger and frustration at the events which had overtaken him, and to try to come to terms with them and find a way forward. Much of the first half is taken up with a stringent criticism of both his own and Douglas's behaviour in the years leading up to his arrest, and the later part reflects some of his recent prison reading, with its emphasis on philosophy, religion and spiritual matters. By the 2nd of April the letter was completed, and Major Nelson requested instructions on whether the letter should be sent to Douglas. Nelson had a little trouble convincing the prison commissioners that the writing of the letter was within the regulations laid down in an earlier memorandum. Gentlemen, I have the honour to request instructions as to whether the above-mentioned prisoner should be allowed to send out to Lord Alfred Douglas the enclosed manuscript, which is practically an autobiography of the prisoner's life during his acquaintance with that gentleman. The prison commissioners asked in reply, Was there any authority given for the prisoner to write this lengthy communication? If so, please send up copy of it. Nelson handled the situation tactfully, and although Wilde was not allowed to send the letter out, he was allowed to take it with him on his release from prison. This shows the first page of the letter, which is held in the British Library. It begins, Dear Bosey, after long and fruitless waiting, I have determined to write to you myself, as much for your sake as for mine as I would not like to think that I had passed through two long years of imprisonment without ever having received a single line from you, or any news or message even, except such as gave me pain. Our ill-fated and lamentable friendship has ended in ruin and public infamy for me, yet the memory of our ancient affection is often with me. Wilde was released from prison at 6.15am on the 19th of May, 1897. The same evening he caught the night boat to Dieppe and never returned to England. Ross had managed to raise £800 through subscriptions from friends, and Wilde settled in the nearby village of Bernval and began writing his last major work, The Ballad of Reading Jail. His wife provided him with an allowance of £150 per year, but due to a number of complications, Wilde's hoped-for 
reconciliation with her and their children did not take place, and he was not in fact to see them again after his release from prison. Following a stream of letters from Douglas, Wilde agreed to meet him. This took place in Rouen in August, and in September he moved to Naples with Douglas, where they both worked on their poetry, Douglas contributing various suggestions to the poem which Wilde was now completing. The Ballad of Reading Jail was published anonymously on the 13th of February, 1898, the author's name being replaced by C33, which stands for cell 3 on the third floor, the location of Wilde's cell in Reading Jail. The poem was based on a real incident which occurred during Wilde's imprisonment, the hanging at Reading Jail of trooper Charles Wooldridge, who murdered his wife in a crime of passion. This is one of the most famous verses. Yet each man kills the thing he loves, by each let this be heard. Some do it with a bitter look, some with a flattering word. The coward does it with a kiss, the brave man with a sword. On the 7th of April, 1897, Wilde's wife, Constance, died following an unsuccessful operation to correct her back injury. From now on until his death, Wilde drifted around Europe, travelling to Switzerland for an unsuccessful stay with a new friend, Harold Meller, to the south of France with Frank Harris, and to Rome, reflecting his growing interest in Catholicism. But he always returned to Paris, where he felt most at ease and least alone in the café society. This shows part of Wilde's final bill at the Hotel d'Alsace in the Rue des Beaux-Arts, Paris, where he spent the last few months of his life. It is made out to Mr. Melmoth, Wilde having adopted the name Sebastian Melmoth as an alias after his release from prison. In October 1900, Wilde underwent a serious operation on the right ear, which had been troubling him since his fall in prison. The operation was not successful, and he required constant medical attention. Other symptoms came into play and his health began to break down. The doctors diagnosed cerebral meningitis, although recent research suggests that he was in fact suffering from meningoencephalitis, a brain disease with similar symptoms caused by a chronic middle ear infection. Shortly before the end, Ross, who had previously discussed the matter with Wilde, fetched a priest and Wilde was formally received into the Roman Catholic Church. He died in the Hotel d'Alsace in Paris at 1.50pm on the 30th of November, 1900. Wilde was only 46 years old, and for a man who had once been described as having the vitality of 20 men, his death was certainly premature. Thanks to the generosity of his friends and of the hotel owner, Monsieur Dupoirier, he did not die in poverty. Robert Ross, Wilde's loyal friend and later his literary executor, wrote to Adela Schuster, as long as he was allowed champagne, he had it throughout his illness. But it was not the end that one would have foreseen for Oscar Wilde only a few years earlier. On the following morning, the 1st of December at 9am, Wilde's death certificate was made out and witnessed by Reginald Gesling from the British Embassy and Robert Ross. The document, which is in French, gives brief details about Wilde, including his age, profession, place of birth and next of kin. It states the time of death as being 2pm on the previous day, but Ross wrote later, with characteristic accuracy, that it took place at 1.50pm. This is the second page showing Ross's name at the top. Wilde was buried in what was effectively a pauper's grave in Bainier Cemetery in the Par suburbs of Paris on the 3rd of December 1900, Ross and Douglas being among the mourners. In 1908, Ross received an anonymous bequest for £2,000 for a monument for Wilde to be placed in Père Lachaise, one of the principal cemeteries in Paris.
The donor, later identified as Mrs. Helen Kennard Carew, specified that the young sculptor, Jacob Epstein, should be given the commission. In 1909, Wilde's body was moved to Père Lachaise, and Epstein began work on the sculpture, which was completed and installed in 1912. Epstein described the figure as a winged poet messenger, and it was influenced by his studies of Assyrian reliefs in the British Museum. On the back of the tomb, the following lines from the Ballad of Reading Jail were carved by the artist and sculptor Eric Gill. And alien tears will fill for him, pity's long-broken urn, for his mourners will be outcast men, and outcasts always mourn. Even in death, controversy seemed to pursue Wilde, Initial complaints of indecency meant that the sculpture was not displayed in its present form until the outbreak of war in 1914. By then, such matters must have appeared somewhat academic. This event was recorded live on the 21st of May, 2009, at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright at the National Archives. All rights reserved.